This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Eliza Reed is here today. She is the First Lady of Iceland and author of the book Secrets of the Sprakar. If you're listening on KXCV or the Bearcat Public Media app, welcome. I'm glad you're here. As we continue coverage of Women's History Month, First Lady Eliza Reed discusses her international best-selling book, Secrets of the Sprakar. And we will discuss how Iceland maintains its number one position in the world, ranking for gender equality. All Real Fiction episodes are available on KXCV's public media app and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find episodes on realfictionradio.com. I will be back in a moment with First Lady Eliza Reed. My guest today, Eliza Reed, is the author of the international bestseller, Secrets of the Sprakar. She is a journalist, editor, and co-founder of the annual Iceland Writers Retreat. Eliza grew up on a farm in Canada, and she moved to Iceland in 2003. In 2016, she became the country's first lady when her husband was elected president of Iceland. In this capacity, she promotes gender equality, entrepreneurship, and innovation, and she supports the the country's writers and rich literary heritage. She wrote a widely read op-ed piece in the New York Times and delivered a TED Talk on the topic of first spouses. This is her first book, Secrets of the Sprakar. It is out now out in paperback in the United States, and Eliza will begin a new book tour in North America in beginning in March. The book invites us all to consider how a more equitable society can elevate us all. Eliza Reed joins me from Reykjavik, Iceland. Eliza, welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you for having me on the program. Let's just set the stage um, for the geography, just to give everybody a reminder uh, where everything is located. Uh, Iceland is an island country in the North Atlantic Ocean. It's situated between Greenland and Norway. It is ranked 180 in world population and number one in gender equality. In fact, early in the book, you note the population um, as a specific data point. And in 2021, the population of Iceland was 368,590. And I look this up just to look for the kind of a general size. It's closest in size to the state of Kentucky in the United States. And the Icelandic word sprakar in the title of your book refers to extraordinary women. And we are going to talk about that. Um, Why don't we start with this? Because you are a champion of explaining Iceland's um, place in terms of gender equality on a global scale. How do you define gender equality? That's a great question. And when we talk about Iceland being the world's most gender equal company, company country, excuse me, that is because we have topped the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap index for the past 13 years. Now, of course, there are other indices um, and there are other indicators, but this one in particular is ranking various things like uh, equal access and opportunity to education, 
access to healthcare, women's uh, success in the political arena, all of which Iceland scores very high in. Um, it also recognizes gender equality in the labor market, and Iceland is a little bit weaker there, which reminds us, of course, that being number one on a list doesn't mean that we've achieved gender equality, but we're a little bit closer than any other country to, to closing that gap. That is excellent framing for one question that I think comes up all the time in countries like the United States and um, other countries with large populations is how to handle a big ticket price factor in raising families. In chi- in terms of childcare, just to kind of give us an eye-popping sense of the difference between what it's like in so many other countries, what can a family expect to pay for full-time care while a woman is working in the workforce? Well, I mean, it's always hard to, uh, I'm a bit reticent to give you the specific uh, numbers because the currency fluctuates and all of that. But I, I would say that there is government paid parental leave policy. So first of all, when a baby is first born, uh, parents, uh, also self-employed parents are paid money by the government rather than by the employer. That, and it, we have a use it or lose it scheme, as it's called, which means that one parent gets a certain number of months and the other parent gets a certain number of months. And then there's a, a little bit extra that you can split between you, which means that in heterosexual relationships, uh, fathers uh, often also take quite a bit of paternity leave. And when that parental leave program runs out, then there is a heavily subsidized system of, of child care for children. So School isn't compulsory until uh, the first grade, six years old, but a large majority of children do attend these excellent preschools that are indeed heavily subsidized. And uh, many municipalities provide additional subsidies if you're a single parent, if you're a student, uh, if you have uh, some sort of disability benefits, or if you even have other siblings in the system. So my husband and I had four children together in just under six years, uh, which was very efficient cost-wise for the system. Uh, when our oldest started the first grade and he had a sort of after-school program as well that was covered, then we had two that were in full-time uh, preschool and one that was at a, a child minders, which is a sort of in-between stage between the parental leave and the, and the preschool that's also subsidized. And that didn't cost us more in total than several hundred dollars a month. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're describing is there is a, you, you almost get a discount, a discounted rate for additional children that are being put kind of into the childcare system. Right. And that the, the rate depends on the municipality where you have some municipalities offer maybe 30% off a sibling, others go all the way up to a hundred percent off and you just pay for their food. So um, it, it kind of depends on, on where you're living, but there generally is some kind of significant sibling discount. Um, It's obviously heavily subsidized. And we do pay for that, of course, with much higher taxes than, for instance, you would see in the United States. Again, um, my guest today is Eliza Reed. She is the First Lady of Iceland. We're discussing her book, The Secrets of the Sprachar. She will be on book tour in the United States as the book is being released as a paperback. It was a huge bestseller around the world. And um, so now I know and I know readers love getting uh, the paperback version um, in many cases. So it's it's great uh, that we get a chance to talk to Eliza now that the book has been out in the world again. Now, when we're talking about childcare or anything that's subsidized by the government and using uh, Nordic countries' social structure as a sort of policy benchmark, it's it's 
typical that in the United States, you know, the response can be a little prickly at times. But I found myself reading um, the book as a testbed for something that communities can absolutely do. And I want to ask you about one example in particular. You talk about the link between uh, grants being used in communities to fund after-school activities and then uh, lay out the associated link between lower rates of crime and vandalism. Yeah. And I really think there's a lot of common ground here. Can you walk us through a little bit of this? Yeah, that's actually from a very specific project, which is now called Planet Youth. Um, in the 1990s, which is before I was, I was living in Iceland, uh, the, the youth of Iceland had quite a reputation, a lot of underage uh, drinking, teenage drinking and, and, and drug use and, um, and, and, and I don't want to sort of say hooliganism, but it was an issue with young people. And there was a really uh, conscientious decision that was made about 20 years ago to try to reduce those rates. And part of that involved municipalities which is providing subsidies for children to take part in some sort of an after school activity because if you are still playing soccer in the evenings and you've got a practice tonight and you've got a practice tomorrow or a big game tomorrow, you're less likely to want to hang out with your friends and start drinking beer when you're 14. And um, this was just one aspect of a whole campaign that was uh, designed to reduce this these uh, rates. And it dropped uh, significantly. Uh, there's been you know a lot of studies done and, and the program has been implemented now in other countries. But that part of it means that students in the school system here get a, a sort of credit towards whether they want to practice the tuba or, or, or do ballet dancing or play soccer that allows uh, kids to participate in after-school activities at a higher rate. What I'm picking up on here is that there's a sense of experimentation in Iceland, that there's a real creativity with how to adopt policies on a local level. And is there kind of a, a spirit of innovation and experimentation when it comes to social policies? Well, absolutely. Well, I think too, in this area, for example, it's also long-term pragmatism because if these kids are living healthier lifestyles younger, they're saving society money in the years down the road. They're less likely to have healthcare crises that we have to pay for. They're more likely to contribute to the economy with a better job. They're more likely to stay in school for longer. So it's, it's really an investment on the future of the country. But the advantage of being in a small society is it enables us to quantifiably rank the success of these situations. And I think we can do that not just in this area of where uh, children are, are being involved, but in areas when we look at, say, gender equality, because I, I think that it, it always helps to have quantifiable information that's showing us uh, the success of these things. And my book talks more about the personal anecdotes of people than the quantifiable statistics, but it's always good to have that background information when we need it. Absolutely. And let's talk about that because in the book, you speak with dozens of women in Iceland um, to get that human face, put that, um, that human perspective on life in Iceland um, as a citizen and as a woman. And sprakar is the term it's, uh, that's used in the title of your book. And it is, as I understand it, a, um, it is used as an, it, it comes from an ancient Icelandic term that means people from all ages and walks of life and regions of the country. And you did that. You went all over the country and um, spoke with people about their lived experiences um, and as a way to give us insight about how we can work to elevate everyone in a community. What I really found fascinating was the um, 
the women's associations and some of the social infrastructure in Iceland that in one sense seems really traditional, but on the, the whole was is quite progressive in terms of how it plays out. Can you talk about that social infrastructure as it comes through in the book? Yeah. And what I was trying to do, as you say, is to speak to this a wide range of women who in some senses are talking about uh, uniquely Icelandic experiences. You know, I call the book my love letter to Iceland. So I hope it introduces readers to this new country. And therefore it touches upon things like the woman who runs a, a search and rescue crew or the woman who has um, a massive farm that's literally in the shadow of a volcano. But also I, I wanted to tell these women's stories because they're somehow relatable to all of us, wherever we are. And, and I hope that that provided inspiration. So when you talk, for example, about these women's associations, a group of people that I spoke to, a group of elderly women who volunteer in, in these sort of women's associations and, and voluntary sort of primarily female groups exist all over the place. And, and these groups in Iceland have existed for, for a long time. And it's women who, you know, cater the receptions after funeral and raise money for children's hospitals. And they do a tremendous amount of work within a community. And I, I don't think that many of them would necessarily see themselves as activists or as pushing towards equality. But I think that they've been a real glue that has held especially uh, smaller, more remote communities together. And I think They've done a tremendous amount of work for the community and, and deserve to be recognized for that as well. So just as one example, that's why it was important for me to include them in, in this book. You are asked all the time, you know, how uh, a young woman from rural Canada ended up as first lady of Iceland. Uh, this is documented. And as I mentioned in the introduction, there's a, an amazing op-ed piece and there's a TED Talk. So those are documented. Those will be linked in the profile <laughs> for this episode. But I want to reference that just to say that it does surprise me how normal it seems for you to be in the role of First Lady while continuing your other major projects, including the Iceland Writers' Retreat, which has become quite a big thing on the global literary circuit. Um, so when I was thinking about how you balance all of this in this very unique country you live in, um, in the chapter um, titled Being Seen and Heard in the Media, you write this, and I hope it's okay to, to pull this line because I thought, <laughs> I thought it really struck an amazing chord. Um, you write, since becoming first lady, I had learned to morph from Eliza changing wet bed sheets and wiping child's snot off the sofa in the morning to Eliza putting on a crisp suit or gown later and having the image appear in the paper, on a television, and online. Mm -hmm. right. So to this, to this day, you still have four kids. This is a balancing act. Obviously, you travel all the time. You've written and commented on first spouses and how they should be viewed. Now that you've been in this role for a while and you've heard from a lot of readers, how is your perspective on this evolving? I think um, speaking to people and meeting people around the country and internationally, it's it's kind of given me more confidence because uh, as people will read in the book, my husband had no career, public career before he became elected president. He was a very uh, mild-mannered historian and academic at the University of Iceland. And it was all very sudden uh, within a couple of months that he even entertained the possibility of running for head of state and then he won the election. And so it was a very 
sudden change. And of course, it's an unbelievable privilege and opportunity to have an op- a moment to serve in this role. But it was quite a steep learning curve. And I always knew that I wanted to be active, that I wanted to use this unexpected opportunity to do something good. But I also wasn't sure what I was allowed to do, right? Because right. I, I'm kind of a rule follower and, and I don't like to uh, rock the boat too much. And gender equality has always been a passion area of mine. But I thought, well, I can't talk about that because I only have a platform because of something my husband achieved. And there's too much irony in that. Um, and then I think as I've gone into it, I thought, well, you know, a lot of us have platforms for whatever reason, and we can either choose to do something with them or not. And and if anything, you know, you asked me what, what meeting people has, has done for me, and that's really kind of shown me that that's okay. Because I think there's kind of a stereotypical, uh, sometimes uh, female response, for example, that I wrote this piece in the New York Times about the strange role or the sort of outdated expectations that surround being the female spouse of a male head of state. And I didn't tell anybody other than my husband that I was going to write this piece because I was a bit worried that if I told um, advisors or, or people like this, that they would try to talk me out of it. And I thought the night before it was going to be published, this is ridiculous. You know, why, why have I done this? People are just going to complain. They're going to say I'm a privileged, spoiled woman who should uh, get off her high horse and worry about real issues that are going on in the world, et cetera, et cetera. Or she's just trying to get attention or, or something like this. But in fact, the feedback was really, really positive because, uh, of course, uh, some of these issues aren't, you know, the biggest issues in, in the world going on today. But uh, I, I use this phrase, you know, it's the culling of one's identity by a thousand paper cuts. You know, there are a lot of sort of small microaggressions and assumptions. And if we don't have the opportunity to speak up about those, uh, none of that is ever going to change. And I think many people could relate to this idea, uh, particularly women, perhaps, that although they're not married to a head of state, a great many people might have partners who, for whatever reason, are better known than they are, and get somehow their identity gets intertwined a lot with this other person. And, um, and, and what that does to one's own identity, even though you're very proud to be connected with that person. So uh, if, if anything, meeting all these people has been a great opportunity for me to, it just kind of reinforces my own self esteem, and helps me build my own trust that I should speak up about these issues and and I should talk about them. I love hearing about that um, that connection that you're making with people. When you travel to other countries, um, and I know you've spent time in the United States and you will be returning, are there things that surprise you when you when you travel to um, other countries in terms of how you're received? Peace. I find it amazing that you weren't handled by staffers um, <laughs> before printing something that just speaks so uh, <laughs> closely to the uniqueness of Iceland. But mm-hmm. how are you? Re- how are you received? Uh, gen- generally very well. And, and I'm very glad about that. And I suppose it's, it's a bit of a vacuum in a sense, because uh, people who go to a book event about a book on Iceland or a book on gender equality are probably people who want to work towards greater equality or are interested in Iceland. Um, you know, maybe some of the people that we're trying to reach or some of the minds we're trying to change aren't necessarily uh, seeing that message. But I, I really hope, and, and I think I have positively experienced that the stories 
of the women that I spoke to. And there is kind of a strong memoir angle to the book as well. So I, I do try to tell this own story, my own story, because I hope in some way it can be relatable and people can think, wait, I, what would I have to do if I all of a sudden had to curtsy before the queen? And, uh, and, and, and hopefully it inspires people to know that we can all have an impact and we do all have an impact on those around us. And it's really up to us if we want to have a positive or, or a negative impact. And, and so hopefully these stories provide some sort of inspiration for people. And, uh, and I really like that. And I, and I love that people maybe don't know very much about Iceland or after they read the book or hear about it, they'd like to visit because I tried to throw in a lot of quirky information or details about the nature or the stories or, or what people might find relatable about a country that they might not know, you know, they might not be very familiar with. Yes. And again, uh, let me remind listeners, my guest today is Eliza Reed. She is the First Lady of Iceland and author of Secrets of the Sprockar. She will be in the United States promoting her book. It coming out, is coming out in paperback. It has been a huge international bestseller. You know, I wanted to ask you about something that you write in Chapter 7, Finding Harmony in the Wild. You said it's impossible to separate Icelanders and the general national character from the natural landscape. Can you touch on that for a moment? Yeah. Uh, anybody who's visited Iceland knows that the landscape is unique here. As you mentioned at the beginning, it's an island in the North Atlantic. It's probably bigger than people think, but geologically speaking, it's very new. It lies on the, um, the mid-Atlantic plate, which means that it's a volcanic island, So, and it's separating. So we have um, volcanoes that sometimes erupt in a in a safe way. Um, and we have amazing waterfalls and hills and black sand beaches. And uh, we have lots of hot springs. So you can go outside, even if the temperature is cold and swim outside in this amazing geothermal water. And the air is very, very clean. So the, the landscape is something very special. And it's, it's one of the things that makes it so accessible to tour visitors, especially from the United States, because it's, you know, it's a five hour flight from the East Coast and everybody speaks English. It's the safest country in the world. And yet you, you come somewhere completely different. And if you can imagine, or I sometimes try to picture what it was like on this island hundreds of years ago, before we had flights, before there was these connections and you develop a really close tie with nature because you know, in these places, and especially in those days, that nature is in charge. You know, you don't know if there's going to be a volcanic eruption. You don't know if there's going to be an earthquake or when there's a rainstorm or, or a windstorm. And you're really kind of at the mercy of the elements, especially in, in those days. And, and, and because we have a small population, even in the capital city, you can drive for half an hour and you're out in the countryside and you can take a walk up and sit in a hot spring that's 40 degrees Celsius and, and soak in it and look at the northern lights. And, and so we're really close to nature here all the time. Yes. And as you write in the book that that connection between land and uh, land and elements means that there are all hands on deck when something needs to get done. And that is that is a way of thinking about gender equality. It comes through the book in your interviews. But I really wanted to highlight that because sometimes in the U.S. we have this we, we have this thing we call sometimes the urban rural divide and we we kind of lose that connection between um 
the land and that a lot of people in the Midwest and in the South live in very rural environments. But in Iceland, you have a very progressive way of thinking about that connection. And it doesn't seem to get lost between urban and rural. Well, I think I was just going to say that when if you talk about it in relation to gender equality, I think one of the key things, too, and that I mentioned is we move beyond this debate about whether this is an important goal to strive for, but how we're going to get there. And part of that reason is because I think, you know, by and large, many people here realize that gender equality is something that benefits people of all genders. It's not something that benefits one group at the expense of another group. It just elevates all groups. And and we see, you know, a very easy example, for instance, is how much men benefit from having excellent paternity leave. And, uh, and, and so this is something that enriches our society for everybody. Yes. And I don't want the fact to get lost that in, I think it was 1980, Iceland had elected uh, a female president. And you don't, in the book, you don't suggest that everything in Iceland is perfect. You describe it as something that is um, it is a model in many ways, but it's something that you persist at. It is part of the, I would say the 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 daily mindset, the ongoing policy making, and I, I is that is that a fair way of saying it that it is a it is a persistent um, goal. And I think you're absolutely right. I would say for sure in policy making, um, you know, if that if that's if sort of gender weren't factored in in some way, that would be. Um, not well considered. I think it's also too easy to not be vigilant for all of us. You know, I think it's very easy to, to sort of take our eyes off the prize. And that's when you have, when you see a backslide. And we saw that globally, for example, after the COVID pandemic, when uh, globally the gender equality gap um, uh, slowed down by an entire generation. Uh, And, and, you know, that was something kind of beyond our control. So you can imagine when we, if we're not really focusing on it and and prioritizing and paying attention to it, it's it's not going to happen of its own accord. Yes. As a final question, after your book tour in the U.S., um, what do you see yourself working on next? I'm curious about how you see your legacy shaping up. What projects um, are you feeling um, passionate about? What are you are you taking on anything uh, new that you might want to share? That's a great question. I mean, immediately when I'm finished the book tour, I'm immediately diving into the minutiae of the Iceland Writers Retreat and Iceland Readers Retreat this year, which uh, is being held at the end of April. So I'll be I'll be focusing on that and um, have various other commitments as well this year as First Lady, uh, state visits, uh, visits within the country, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I do a lot of work also promoting Iceland as a sort of business and investment destination. So I'm working on that. But I hope sometime you can have me on the show some other time, maybe if I manage to write another book, because I've had such a fun experience, uh, not only uh, writing and, and researching this book, but but then talking about it and taking it on the road and, and meeting people and getting feedback that I really hope I'm able to do something else uh, considering that in the future. We'll watch this space. <laughs> You almost anticipated that question. I do hope you'll write another book. This is uh, a fantastic um, memoir. It is written from one of the most unique perspectives you can possibly imagine. From the first lady of Iceland, Eliza Reid grew up in Canada and is a global voice for gender equality. The book gives us some very practical things to think about what we can do in our own backyard. And um, it's really been um, an education for me to read this book. And 
Um, so Eliza Reed, it's been an honor and a, a privilege to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. All Real Fiction episodes are available on KXCV's public media app and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find episodes on realfictionradio.com. I have guest profiles on the website, along with links to some of the specific things we discuss, just in case you're interested in more background information. And a reminder that Real Fiction is available on most social media platforms. You can find me there. And it airs every Saturday, 1130 a.m. on KXCV. Thanks for listening.